0: Well, good morning and welcome to this assembly of Blaine Baptist Church. Uh, This will be a little bit briefer time this morning. As you can see on the back of your bulletins, we don't have very many announcements, but just a couple of things to note. Uh, Of course, you've already noticed that we have Dr. Kevin Bowder with us from Central Seminary, and we are certainly delighted to have him here today. We had a wonderful Sunday school hour talking about Jesus from John chapter 1. And if you missed that, I encourage you to listen to that recording. That was a wonderful explanation of the deity of Christ. And in the morning hour, he's going to spend some time talking to us about one of the other two most important texts in the Bible related to Christ as he views it. So we're looking forward to that here in a few moments. Uh, Just to repeat what Pastor Nathan said last week as well, um, there will be no ladies Christmas luncheon this year. You can see information about that. On the back of the bulletin, uh, two prayer requests to mention. There's several prayer updates um, on the inside of your bulletin, but just to remind us to be praying for Edith. She's home today, quarantining, but she has her second cataract surgery tomorrow, so we could be in prayer for her certainly. And then also remembering um, Tom, the friend of Ben's parents, who is not doing very well at all with COVID, and praying for his salvation. Certainly, uh, in addition to his health, and even even above his health, there. So just remember those two. Of course, remember all the all the requests in the bulletin, but just wanted to highlight those for you. Our memory verse that we've been working on is uh, has grown to a couple of verses. Mark eight thirty four through thirty five, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Mark eight thirty-four through 35. Let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for reminding us this week of gratefulness and of thanksgiving. I pray that you would help us not to um, go a whole year between being grateful and between giving you thanks for the many things that you've done for us. Lord, help us to be a grateful people. Help our lives to be marked by thanksgiving. I pray that you would help us now as we transition our minds to... Uh, the Christmas season, that you would help us to be thankful for you sending Jesus into the world that we might live through him. I pray that you would help us to understand better who Christ is and what he's done for us, that we can give you better thanks, and that we can give you better worship in response. Please bless our time this morning singing praises to you, reading scripture, praying to you, Lord and hearing from your word, I pray that you would help us to respond as we ought to with gratitude and worship this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One thing I will mention before John comes to read our psalm for us this morning, and by the way, we read that responsively, and you can find the bolded responsive text on the inside of your bulletin, but just a reminder. Uh, Definitely also be praying for Pastor Nathan and his family as they're on their uh, vacation, seeing family for Thanksgiving right now. Pray that that would be a blessing and an encouraging time to them and that the Lord would return them to us safely in a few days.
1: Psalm 20. For the choir director, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May he send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. (coughs) Chariots and and some horses. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Lord. May the King answer us in the day we call.
2: Good morning. You'll find in your handouts the song Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. Everyone should have one. If we'll stand at this time, as you're able, we'll sing all four verses. Holy God, We Praise Thy Name. If you take the gray hymnal, turn to number two hundred seventy three. Number two seventy three, a song named Simply Credo. I might need. Four verses, a song, Credo, number 273. Eternity is ours if we believe in Christ. This time we'll have then read the scriptures.
3: So we'll be in Daniel chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Daniel chapter 5, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed of his royal throne, and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this but you have exalted yourself against the lord of heaven and they have brought and you and they have brought vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze iron wood and stone which do not see hear or understand but god but the god whose hand in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of heaven, you are the God of earth, you are the God of all creation. Lord, please keep us from any boastfulness in ourselves, any praise of ourself, but let our praise be of you. let our boasting, if there is boasting be in you. Lord for you have done all as we heard this morning you hold us together even as we have need for food and all things Lord we are completely unself-sufficient. And we are all dependent on you. Let that be our only our only speech of ourselves that we are dependent on you. Lord. We thank you for the salvation on which we are dependent, made possible by your son dying for our sins. Lord. We thank you for that. Help us not to be as Belshazzar and forget what um, we have learned. Lord, help us um, help us to honor you as we worship you the rest of today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: The God of the heavens, though he suffered and died for us, did not stay dead. He returned to the heavens in a glorious resurrection. We'll sing about that now. Number 171 in your gray hymnals. The day of resurrection, number 171. When you find it, if you'd stand as you're able. Number 171.
0: come forward to prepare for the offering at this time. Let's go to prayer. Father, thank you for blessing us so richly beyond all that we need. With all things to enjoy, please help us to be a grateful people. I pray that as we give today, that you would use the money that we give to glorify and honor your name as you do your work through it here in Blaine, and throughout Minnesota and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: christ you are truly bound for the promised land and whether that be by your own death or by the rapture it's happening soon or soon as the lord would call it <laughs> who is above time but either way the sands of time are sinking number 340 one of my favorite personal favorite hymns of all time number 340 the sands of time are sinking uh, we'll stand, if you're able, and sing all four verses. The Sands of Time are sinking number 340 in the gray hymnals. we approach, we don't know, of course, when the Lord is going to come back. But in that time being, we of course request that he abide with us until the end. Number 328, abide with me. Fast falls the eventide, number 328, and still in the grave hymnals, abide with me.
4: Oh fifth verse, we will
2: sing a cappella as the instruments drop out. Verse number five.
4: Hold thou thy cross
0: I'm grateful that we can keep our introductions short when Dr. Bowder comes to preach with us, not because I don't like talking about him, but it means he's here rather frequently. We try to have him, I think, at least once a year, and it's always a delight to have him open God's word to us, as I'm sure it will be today. Dr. Bowder,
5: I commented during the Sunday school hour that the thing I'm trying to do today is to lay the foundation for the season during which we reflect upon the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is to say the Christmas season. Um, During the Sunday school hour, I took a moment to dispel what I think are some of the anti-myths concerning Christmas, that is to say, just just to let you know, Christmas is not a pagan holiday, it's a Christian holiday, we don't have to worry about that word Christmas, that's that's not a problem for us either, and you don't even have to worry about Santa Claus, And as I announced in uh, Sunday school this morning, if you're back tonight, you will hear me talk about why I believe in Santa Claus, so if that doesn't get you back, I don't know what will. This morning, I'm going to invite your attention to Philippians chapter 2, the Epistle to the Philippians chapter 2, and let me just begin reading at the beginning of the chapter. Um, I've got a King James, the wording may be a little different than some of you have in your hand, but I think between us we'll grasp the meaning. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any, fellowship of the Spirit, if any, bowels and mercies, splunkna and mercies. That's, that's a word that means something like compassion. Uh, fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Apparently, even though the church at Philippi was a very good church by any standard, And it was one to which Paul wrote with great tenderness. Nevertheless, there were some divisions within this church, and Paul is concerned about those. He says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in our relationship with each other, we should be as concerned for one another as we are for ourselves. Now, he's not saying that we need to become doormats for one another so that you know, whoever the dominant personality happens to be, when that person barks, everybody else serves his interests or her interests, as the case may be. Rather, what he's saying is that we should be keenly aware of the situations that affect all of our brothers and sisters, and that when we make our choices their concerns and their interests should be just as important to us as our own concerns and interests. Now, those are teachings that that are not only difficult to live out, they're actually a bit difficult to understand. What it requires is, is not... For, for Paul to get what he wants from us. He not only needs to tell us what to do, he needs to show us how it's supposed to be done. And in showing us how it's supposed to be done, he takes the rest of this chapter to give us a series of portraits of people who actually do live in the way that Paul is saying that we should live, who treat the concerns of their brothers and sisters as just as important or even more important than their own concerns. If you go down to the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 25, you read about a fellow named Epaphroditus. There's a good chance that Epaphroditus was one of the pastors in the church at Philippi, maybe the pastor of the church at Philippi. At any rate, whether he was the pastor or not, he was the the member of the church who had been chosen to travel to Rome with a gift for the apostle Paul, because Paul was in jail, he had nothing, he was in poverty, uh, he, he had real needs, and the church at Philippi, even though they were a very poor church, chose to send Paul what they had, thus assuming Paul's needs themselves. Epaphroditus was the one who carried the gift, but along the way he became extremely sick, to the point, Paul said, that he actually risked his life in order to get the gift to Rome. And Paul is citing Epaphroditus as an example of the kind of person who lives the way that Paul has just described at the beginning of chapter 2. Before he gets to Epaphroditus, beginning beginning in verse 9, he's talking about Timothy. And Timothy also is an example of the kind of individual Paul has in mind. Paul, uh, 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 Timothy, according to verse 20, naturally cares for your state. He he is an individual who is deeply interested in what affects those to whom he ministers, and their interests are just as important to him as, or even more important than, his own interests. Before that, Paul talks about himself as an example of the kind of thing that he's discussing, the kind of self-giving, self-deprecating interest in others that drives him. But the very first illustration that he gives is certainly the most vivid and the most important of all, and it's the one that I want to focus on this morning. It begins in verse 5, and it's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, or literally, think this in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here in verse 5, Paul says you want to learn to live this way. You want to learn how to set the interests of others on a par with your own interests, or even above your own interests, then, he says, what you need to do is to think like Jesus thought. Well, if somebody says to you, think like Jesus thought, what do you want to know? Well, I want to know, okay, Paul, if I'm going to think like Jesus thought, then tell me, how did Jesus think? And over the next few verses, what Paul does is to describe for us the mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he depicts the mindset, the thought process of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of three great downward steps that the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to take in order that he might become our Savior and rescue us from sin and from condemnation, which we deserved. The first step is found in verse 6. Who, Christ, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Let me summarize this step with this expression. How did Jesus Christ think? Well, first of all, he denied himself. He denied himself, not by way of denying his nature. He could never do that. The Lord Jesus Christ could never stop being God. The Lord Jesus Christ could never divest himself of any of his divine attributes. That's not what Paul is saying. That's In fact, Paul talks about that in another place when he writes to Timothy, Uh, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says he cannot deny himself in terms of denying his own nature. But Jesus did deny himself in terms of denying himself those privileges to which he had every right. Well, to what privileges did he have a right? Paul says that he subsisted in the form of God. That is to say, from eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ enjoyed visible equality with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. He was a co-equal participant in the splendor, glory, and majesty of the Godhead. When the angels gathered around the throne and worshipped God, they were worshiping Jesus Christ, or the one, the person who would become Jesus Christ. In in fact, it's very interesting. You remember Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah dies has this vision in which the Lord, he's he's in the heavenly temple. The Lord is on a throne. He's high and lifted up. The, the Lord's train fills the temple. The seraphim are there around the throne. Uh, they, they have the six wings. They're covering their face. They're covering their feet. They're flying, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You remember that passage? Over in John chapter 12, when John reflects on that passage, he says that Isaiah was looking at the second person, at the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would be born as Jesus. That's glory, that's dignity, that's majesty. I don't know if we have any Anglophiles in the room I don't know that I'm necessarily an anglophile a fan of English British ways of doing things but I will say this the Brits really know how to do ceremony I I mean if if you if you you want to see pomp and circumstance well it was it was they who wrote pomp and circumstance uh and it, it's they who live it out you you, you think of the queen on public display and you know she she's in robes and a crown and has a gilded carriage and what what ceremony what majesty um, the story is told that an American photographer Anne Leibovitz was commissioned to do a portrait of Elizabeth and um, for the portrait Elizabeth appeared in her royal robes wearing the the, the tiara and Anne, quintess- quintessentially American, made a comment that, that that she thought, you know, that looks, a- why, why don't you take the tiara off, take off the crown, You you look just a, it looks a little too splendid. And Elizabeth gestured to the rest of her robes, which, you know, they're silver and gold and velvet and silk, and she said, and this isn't? She kept the crown on, by the way. <laughs> Majesty, ceremony, splendor, pomp. But it's nothing. Nothing. It's mean. It's base compared to the throne room of heaven. And from eternity past, the Lord Jesus Christ shared in the full grandeur and dignity of the triune God. But according to the Apostle Paul, He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That word robbery is an interesting term. It can go a couple of different ways, but they're related. The idea is that it designates an extremely precious possession. A possession that is so precious that if you had it, you would never give it up. And if you didn't have it, you might even steal to get it. Now here, the the King James translators have tended to focus on the stealing side of it. But I think that's a bit of a mistake. I think it's better to focus on the giving up side. I think that what Paul is saying is, that for the Lord Jesus Christ, visible equality with God was not a thing that was so precious that he had to cling to it at all costs or that he would never give it up. In other words, as I've already said, he was willing to deny himself. He didn't have to get the pomp and the splendor. He was willing to forego that. Now, he couldn't stop being God. But he could assume a station in which he would not be recognized as God. It was the visible glory. It was the the splendor. It it was all of the, the honor and the credit that he deserved that he was willing to give up. It's like some preachers and their doctorates. Have you have you noticed this? That, that uh, you know, it doesn't matter if they got their doctorate out of a chocolate box or a Cracker Jack box. They really want to be called doctor. You know, maybe they've got a DD or maybe they've got a D-man or they've got a THD or a PhD. Well, Jesus had a G.O.D. okay? And he wasn't willing to insist on receiving the splendor that was his due. He didn't have to get credit. What does that look like in our minds? Well, it looks like not having to get credit. It looks like not having to be treated with all the dignity that we think we deserve. It it looks like being willing to be just another person or maybe even a little lower than other people. You know, there's a story that I've heard about a pond that was drying up. And in the pond, there was a frog and there were two ducks. And as the pond dried up, it became clear that the frog was not going to be able to survive. And so he suggested to the two ducks, you know, if each of you would take an end of a stick in your feet and you were to fly he said i could i could bite and hold onto the stick and you could carry me to another pond where i would be able to flourish and the ducks thought about it and they 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 thought well we'd be willing to do that and so they they found a stick and they got a hold of it and the the frog just clamped right down on it and the ducks took off and they were on their way to the next pond and a farmer saw this and he he thought wow that's a great idea i wonder who thought of that and the frog said i did <laughs> How much do we do so we can get credit? How much do we do so that we can receive honor or be recognized? And how much would get done if none of that mattered to us? If the only thing that mattered was serving our brothers and sisters? How much would the Lord accomplish if we were simply willing to deny ourselves? as the Lord Jesus was willing to deny himself. This is the first great step down. The next step comes in verse 7. But, rather than clinging to visible equality with God, he made himself of no reputation. The word there is literally a word for emptying. In fact, some of you probably have that in your version of scripture. He emptied himself is literally what it means. He emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant, the form of a slave, and was made in the likeness of man. So, first step down, he denied himself. Second downward step, he emptied himself. Now, I've got to tell you that that's a point at which a lot of theologians get hung up. They, they, they spend tons and tons of time trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself in the Incarnation. In fact, that's, that's a standard question in most ordinations. When you have the ordination council that's gathered and they're interviewing the candidate, Almost invariably, one of, the, one of the members of the council will ask the candidate, what does it mean in uh, Philippians two seven that Jesus emptied himself? There are people who say that Jesus emptied himself of his godhood. Well, that's not possible. There are people who say that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes. That's not possible. In fact, I don't think we have to go around speculating because the verse actually specifies what it means that Jesus emptied himself. For Jesus to empty himself means two things. First, it means that he became a slave. He took upon him the form of a servant, the form of a slave. This this is the word for slave here. There there are different kinds of servants, right? Right? There, there are servants who get paid for what they do. There are servants who, you know, maybe just wait on you at a table. But this is the word for slave. It's a very strong word for servant. Jesus, in his incarnation, became a slave. In fact, the author of Hebrews Reflecting upon this point in Hebrews chapter 10, mentions that when he came into the world, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. In other words, when Jesus came into the world, he had no hopes or goals or dreams or ambitions of his own. He wasn't here to do what he wanted to do. He came into the world strictly and entirely to execute the will of the Father, to carry out what the Father wanted. His only commitment was to obedience. Now sometimes that was very hard for him to do, because frankly, the Father asked a lot of the incarnate Son. And in his human nature, according to his human nature, there were things in the Father's will that scared the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember that the night before he went to the cross, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed and said to the Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but thine be done. In other words, he was willing to submit himself to the Father's will, no matter how hard it became. Secondly, it says that he was made in the likeness of men. Literally, he came to be in the likeness of men. This this is why sometimes when I talk about this, you'll hear me make a distinction. For, For example, a moment ago when I talked about Isaiah, seeing the king on the throne, high and lifted up. I I made the comment that he was seeing Jesus, or, more correctly, the one who would become Jesus. You see, Jesus is the human name of the incarnate Son of God. Before the incarnation, he is the same person. He's the second person of the Godhead, but he's not yet a human being. The point of the incarnation, the point of Christmas is this, that in the incarnation, the eternal second person of the Godhead adds to his person, his eternal divine person, a complete human nature. And in his human nature, he willingly becomes subject to all the limitations that are natural to humanity. Now, that doesn't mean that he became a sinner, and it doesn't mean that he ever had a sin nature. That is not true, because those things are not natural to humanity. Sin is an invader. We brought in the invader, and sin brought death. Jesus didn't deserve to die. But we are finite beings. The human nature that he assumed was a finite human nature. We are limited in our knowledge. The human nature that Jesus took into himself was limited in its knowledge. We we are not omnipresent. We are limited in location. The human nature that Jesus took into himself was limited in its spatial location. In, In other words, when we talk about the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, we are really talking about two things at once, according to his human nature He is eternal. According to his human nature, he had a beginning. According to his divine nature... Did I say divine nature a moment ago? According to his divine nature, he is eternal. According to his divine nature, he is omniscient. He knows everything. According to his human nature, he is limited in knowledge. According to his divine nature, he is everywhere present. According to his human nature... He is locally present. He's not omnipresent. And and by the way, if, if if you're feeling like you have trouble putting all of that together, welcome to the club. We all do, and none of us have worked it out yet. But it's true. It's true that he is at the very same time God and man. He was willing to become one of us. He was willing to take our nature with all of its limitations. He could get tired. He could become hungry. He was subject to pain. He could cry, and he did. These are all things that became true of the incarnate, Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this is part of how he emptied himself in order that he might become a servant, in order that he might serve his Father, and by serving his Father, serve us. After all, what could be of greater service to us than to bear the price of our sins so that we could be forgiven and so that we could receive eternal life? There comes a time when we ought to look at our brothers and sisters. And the question that ought to be uppermost in our minds is simply this one. How can I serve you? What do you need that I can supply? Why has God put me in your life? How can I make you better than you are? And that kind of question in our relationships with each other ought to be uppermost in our minds. It's not, how can you serve me? How can I look good? It's, how can I serve you? Your congregation here is in fellowship with the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. I'm not sure whether you even all know what that means or whether you even know what the the GARBC is. The organization was founded in 1932. It was brought out of the ruins of the Baptist Bible Union. One of the three men who was responsible for starting the original Baptist Bible Union was a Grand Rapids pastor by the name of Oliver W. Van Osdall. And when the Baptist Bible Union fell apart, largely because of mismanagement by others, Van Osdel had the conviction that there still needs to be a fellowship among Baptist churches that believe the word of God. And he kept pushing for the fellowship. But he was a very old man, and he knew that he didn't have long that he could lead people. And so what he did was to go to certain key younger men, and to say to them, we need this, you need to work together to make it happen, and I'll just be your secretary. Well, he was one of the most important men of his day. He was a leader, he was a mover and a shaker, but he was willing to take a backseat subordinate role in order to get something good accomplished. Are we willing to take that back seat? subordinate role are we willing to work under somebody who we may think isn't quite as gifted as we are maybe not quite as knowledgeable as we are simply in order to get the work done are we willing to become servants slaves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the lord jesus christ so jesus Denied himself. There was no honor that was too dear for him to deny. Jesus emptied himself. There was no command from God that was too hard for him to obey. And then in verse 8, we read that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross he humbled himself that's the third great downward step now you may think wait a minute when he denied himself what wasn't that humble what wasn't that humility wasn't he humbling himself when he emptied himself wasn't that humility Was, wasn't 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 he already Humbling himself? And the answer is yes, of course. But what Paul is saying is that there remains a third step that is even more extreme than those first two. And that third step has to be characterized by the expression that he humbled himself. Again, he offers us, Paul offers us two descriptions of this self-humbling. First, it says that Jesus was found in fashion as a man. That is to say, that when people met the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as they were concerned, from what they could see, he was just another guy. It, it, in other words, there was nothing outstanding about his physical appearance. Um, you, you know, you, you see these pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ with, with the, little halo of light around his head. Uh Uh-uh, that wasn't there. Uh, It it would have been nice maybe if it had been, but it wasn't. He willingly subjected himself to be just another guy in terms of anything that people could observe. In fact, if if you take Isaiah seriously, Isaiah says he has no form nor comeliness. In other words, Not only was he just another guy, he wasn't even a particularly good-looking guy. There, There was nothing attractive in his appearance. More than that, Paul says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, specifically the death of the cross. Now remember, we've already said Jesus, when he came into the world, did not deserve to die. He had never sinned, he had no sin nature, he was not under condemnation, he was not under the penalty of sin for himself, and yet he was willing to die. Why? For you and for me. And it was a remarkable kind of death. He not only died, he specifically died the death of the cross. The death of the cross was a gruesome death. To to die to be crucified was essentially to be tortured to death. And probably, if not the most extreme, at least one of the most extreme forms of torture that humans have ever invented. It was also a judicial death. If you were crucified, that meant that you were regarded as a lawbreaker, as a malefactor. In fact, this, this kind of death was reserved. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. It was against the law. This, this kind of death was reserved only for the very worst criminals in the realm, which meant also that it was a shameful death. And yet Jesus was willing to go to the cross. He despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to suffer violence and shame and retribution, not for those who were neutral toward him, but toward those who despised him. You remember Air Florida Flight 90 that crashed several years ago? Went down in a frozen lake in the middle of a snowstorm. The, there were a handful of survivors out in the middle of the lake. Um, the, the The rescuers finally got a helicopter going, and and they they brought the helicopter out, and they they threw the, the, the life belt down to the first guy who grabbed it. His name was Arlen Williams. And he took the life belt, and he put it around the person next to him. And they, they pulled that person out and saved the life. And the helicopter came back, and they threw the life belt out. And Arlen Williams caught it, and he put it around the next person. And they lifted that person out, saved the life, The next one, Williams caught the life belt, put it around the next person. He could have put it on himself at any point. They'd have lifted him out. It wasn't until he had got every other living survivor, which I guess is repetitively redundant, every other survivor off the aircraft that they finally came back and they lowered the life belt to Williams, and he couldn't take it. He was already dead. He gave his life for people he didn't even know. And we look at that as a remarkable act of sacrifice, and rightly so, we should. It was a remarkable act of sacrifice, but what the Lord Jesus did was far beyond that. He gave himself, not not just for people he had never met, but for people whom he knew in detail. He knew exactly who they were. He knew exactly what their hearts were like. He knew exactly what their attitudes were toward him and toward his father. He knew that they were the people whom Paul describes in Romans chapter 1 as those who have turned their backs on God. Jesus gave himself for them. In other words, there was no duty that was too low, too menial, too humiliating. For him to embrace. So the Lord Jesus denied himself. The Lord Jesus emptied himself. The Lord Jesus humbled himself. And that's the kind of mentality that we need. Paul says, think this in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus. As you look around at your brothers and sisters, how much of this are you willing to do in their behalf? How much are you willing to suffer for them? For how? What are you willing to deny yourself? How are you willing to empty yourself? How are you willing to humble yourself? Now, well, it's worth saying that Paul doesn't end the story there. Paul goes on and says, wherefore? Paul is quoting there from Isaiah chapter 45 verses 20 through 23. He is taking words that were originally written about Jehovah and he is applying them to the Lord Jesus Christ. This This is the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the glory that he denied himself, he's got it back. Only now to his eternal glory as the second person of the Godhead, he has added the messianic glory of a perfectly obedient human being. He is infinitely exalted. He is infinitely glorious. By the way, someday we too will be exalted. Someday we too will participate and share in his glory. But for us, as for him, The way up is, first of all, the way down. The way to glory leads through the valley of humiliation. And so, as Paul says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the description that we have read of the Lord Jesus Christ and how we marvel, how we marvel at his self-denial and his self-emptying and his self-humbling. Father, to the extent that we do understand these things, we struggle to obey them. And yet we pray that as your word has its effect upon us and your spirit works within us, that we would become more and more the kind of individuals who manifest these aspects of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask it for his glory and in his name. Amen. Amen.
2: Number 335, as we close this morning, number 335 in your blue hymnals, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? We'll sing verses 1, 3, and 5. And if you'll stand as you're able, number 335.
0: This morning, of glorious truths related to the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And we've learned how to apply them, both in our apologetic, in our defense of Christ's deity, and also in our humble application of Christ's own example in our relationships in the church. Let us go forth this morning not only remembering those things, but also acting upon them and doing them. You are dismissed.